Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 047, Getting the Right Start. How you doing tonight, Kyle? Pretty good. Uh, I was a little hairy earlier today. I heat treated my first batch of MagnaCut uh, knives, so... Uh, that 2200 degrees is a whole nother thing, isn't it? Well, I went to 2150 and then I'm tempering at 350. So hopefully right. I'm going to be in like the 63 range. Ooh. Did you cryo treating them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I, I cryo treated them. <laughs> so uh, I've got this big door that I got from my old work uh, in the auction and uh, it has this like bubbler fill thing. So you don't have to like pick it up and dump it. Yeah. Because it's also 35 liters, so it weighs... It is way safer than the one I use. Well, well... <laughs> <laughs> About that. So, so, I, <laughs> so uh, the, I was uh, planning on just kind of like taking the top off and putting the, yeah. putting the knives down in there. Which is what I have to do. Yeah, well, I started undoing the like V-band clamp that holds the whole thing on there. <laughs> and then uh, Some <laughs> liquid nitrogen started... <laughs> yeah liquid nitrogen started like spraying everywhere and i did like a dance and then i stepped back like stepped like five feet back and i'm like well, i gotta do something spraying everywhere <laughs> so then i i tightened it back up and then i grabbed one of my big coolers and kind of like propped it up at an angle so i didn't have to fill the whole cooler full of liquid nitrogen and use the valve and put it into the the cooler like it's designed to do like i should have done from the get-go and uh, everything turned out fairly good. I've got, uh, I did eight knives. Three of them are kind of warped a little bit. Uh, so that's finishing up its second round of tempering. Now I've got some some shims in there trying to uh, shim it out in the temper. So we're going to see how that goes. Yeah. And at the, the high heat, I have trouble. I used to, well, I used to have trouble with the foil welding to the steel. But now that I use Duffy's Industries uh, antioxidation, uh, lacquer i don't have that trouble anymore mm-hmm. yeah just saying i might have to look i might have to look into getting some of that because uh it was kind of hard to get some of the foil off so you got a got a really tight seal though which is impressive but i have i occasionally have had to go to go at the foil with a chisel and sandpaper and trying to get it off um, and that Duffy's mm-hmm. industry stuff is no joke. I mean, it really works. Okay. Especially if I might have to, and I'm reminding you of this, some of that. I'm reminding you of this after you spent a whole bunch of money on a really long roll of foil. Yeah. Yeah. The 50 footer. <laughs> yep. I'm here for you, brother. So, uh, <laughs> what how have you been doing, Dan? You've got a bunch of snow down there. Snowmageddon. So I've been reminded <laughs> that's, that's like a normal day up here. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I used to live in the frozen North 
and there's a reason I moved south. And one of them was, we don't need snow shovels. I had forgotten how horrible shoveling snow is. I, it, I've got nothing to say about the devil's dandruff that's been falling around here. <laughs> Except it did get us out of um, two days of work, and I had a lovely day of uh, day drinking yesterday because there was nothing to do. I mean, we were stuck at home. There was a solid four inches of snow, so obviously there's nothing you can do but stay at home. Well, if your knife shop's at home, then uh, you still get to go out and work. <laughs> like me. There is some reasons my knife shop isn't at home anymore. <laughs> nice. Um, one of them was work-life balance, and the other is when you get snowed in with the family, you're with the family. Yeah. And this one's been nice because Alex is 16 now, so... Once roads were semi-passable, it was almost like not having kids again. It was just Beth and I by the fire. Oh, I learned something. Oh, lay it on me. It turns out I liked mold wine. It, so mold, uh, mold spiced wine. Okay. Um, my mom had given me some seasoning in, for Christmas as a kit. I had never really heard of it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty damn good. I mean, that's like. The next time I go to Georgia Bushcraft and it's a little chilly outside, it turns a $12 bottle of wine into something really delicious and doubles the volume. There is, it is everything that is good about alcohol. Yeah. There's a, there's like a a Christmas market that's in downtown Chicago called Chris Kendall Mart. And they've got a couple like satellite locations in the suburbs and stuff now too, but they, they sell that spiced wine my wife always goes gaga over it. I'm not a big wine person, so I usually get a beer. So, but so little secret the recipe I have is you add eight, 12 ish ounces of brandy to it. Okay. So it's not so much wine by the time you're done, but it's still orange and cardamom and spice and clove and mace. And it's, it's got all those winter warm spices yeah. with a little bit of orange and, um, it's a little boozy. Yeah. Sounds like it. It makes you think things like, hey, yeah, I'm 47 years old, but I can totally go sledding today. <laughs> nice. So, uh, yeah, I'm not known for good decision making. <laughs> so uh, our sponsors for the podcast, uh, we got Broadbeck Ironworks. They make best kit grinders in the business. I use them and love mine, and it's been great for me. You can use the discount code KP and get a free Mareco Platin upgrade for your knife grinder package. Uh, that gives you a extra deep platen. Apparently, a lot of the uh, hidden tang knife makers say it really helps a lot with being able to move the knife around and get some of those angles that you need. But maybe I'll end up getting one at some point. But yeah, the, guy, the guys at Broadbeck, they also sell belts and all sorts of other knife stuff. They sell epoxies and everything. So Make sure you give them a a checkout. And uh, if you have a 2x72, you're going to need some good belts. And uh, one of our sponsors, Phoenix Abrasives, uh, has a discount code KP10, which gives you 10% off all of their wonderful belts and sandpaper and even respirators and stuff. Uh, So make sure you check them out. I have fully drank the Kool-Aid on their purple belts. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've stepped back down to doing some S35 and CPM 154. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nort, I, I've complained about this before. Norton's tracking has gotten bad here in the last year or so. 
the pur- purple belts are cutting just as well. And the tracking is a whole lot truer. And I'm actually getting more life out of the purple belts than I am from the Norton ones. Yep. I've liked them for a really long time. And I use that trick that they talked about um, when we had them on about after a while, turn the belt around and you know 180 degrees and run it the other way. Mm-hmm. And it really does. It extends the life of the belt. I get better cutting. Yep. I also uh, take a mild steel bar and shove it in there after a while, too, before I get to like the the more finished passes. And that helps break some of those ceramic grains and stuff that you just can't get enough pressure on uh, when you're doing a bevel. Yeah. Helps it start to cut a lot better, too. So uh, Phoenix Abrasives KP10 for 10% off all your orders. They also sell Rhino Wet 9x11 sandpaper. One of the things yeah. I love to get from them also. I use the heck out of that. And if you're a knife maker and also a knife collector, uh, you can check out our other sponsor, Old Town Cutlery. They have a discount code KP10 also for 10% off everything in their store. They just got some really cool, was it Ernest Wright uh, Turton scissors? Um, I, they're from Sheffield, England. My mother-in-law is also like a big sewing person. They have these like stork yeah. Uh, little uh, trim yeah. scissors that I'm thinking about getting her for for a gift. So, yeah, they have all sorts of stuff. Is it a stork or a crane? I thought it was a stork. I could be wrong. I thought it was a crane. Could be. I don't know. What's the difference between a stork and a crane? Um. <laughs> well, one's um, one brings babies, <laughs> and the other. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, the, so they sell all sorts of production knives. Our wonderful uh, guest on the podcast, they sell his knives. Yeah, they sell all sorts of production knives and everything in between. They also sell knife all making supplies, knives. Um, handle scales, and they've got some some really cool wood stuff in. They also have a knife maker specific email list that I somehow got unsubscribed from, but they send out... Um, an email specific to all the knife makers when they get new handle material and stuff in. So uh, that's usually good for making me spend more money. And then uh, you can find uh, cage daily knives and dogwood custom knives. Like we said at old town cutlery, you can find dogwood custom knives at knife center and the cook station also. And you can also find cage daily knives at Northside cutlery uh, up here in Chicago. Yeah. Our, Big thanks to all of our dealers. Helps us do what we're able to do. Got looks like uh, you got the first first bullet point for the the shout out gear talk there, Dan. I do, um, and I've actually got two. Yeah, there are two. Somebody uh, somebody edited my show notes and corrected all the spelling, but there was really supposed to be a, a second line there, like that. And it's fixed now, there, like magic. There you go. So, uh, Red Falcon uh, Woodworks. Uh, Red Falcon underscore Woodworks on Instagram. They do a lot of like ancient cypress and bog oak and really cool. It's low volume specialty runs, but every piece has got a story to it. I've got some from them recently that is carbon dated to, I've got a look, but I think it's like 550 BC. Sure. I mean, truly ancient wood. And the, the the ancient stuff comes with a certificate, carbon dated, proving it, its age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's 
kind of fun to work with materials that are older than your culture. Mm-hmm. And they do some some cool, beautiful stuff. And then I also want to shout out to uh, Valhalla Designs. I uh, stumbled onto them to, on Instagram, and they're doing some really cool stabilized materials. Uh, they're also doing some hybrid stuff. The color combinations and the textures that they're doing are, are really cool. And I hesitate to mention them because then people are going to start buying from them and their price is going to go up because right now uh, they don't know what they're worth and they're priced a little low. So it, it's a good time to get in. Gotcha. It looks like you uh, had another bullet point there. The wallet. Oh, yeah. Um, they also, apart from making handle materials, they make some really cool ultra minimalist wallets. Uh, they also make some uh, finger knucks and some other things. I, I'm into them for the handle materials, but they do a, they do do a pretty cool. I said doo doo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this this is some of the stuff we have to edit out here, Galti. Oh, no, no, that's gold. That's entertainment, man. That is why people listen to this podcast. So what were you saying? All right, so tell me about uh, TR Makers. Uh, So uh, one of the knife vices that I got uh, last spring, they had a a pre-order. the blue one? Yeah, the blue one. Um, I really like it. It's uh, TR Makers out of Turkey, I believe it is. Hmm. They make this knife ice that I've really liked. It has a lever on the back and it can spin 360 degrees uh, parallel to the axis of the knife. And then there's two levers on either side. So you can tilt it uh, front to back 180 degrees. And then the other one lets you spin uh, perpendicular to the axis all the way around. So I put a real. Both the X and the Y axis. Yeah. And Z. Yeah. So you can. Yeah, I re- I really like it. I put up a reel on my Instagram of me doing some file finishing some file work in it. Uh it's just super handy to spin it around and get it in the exact position to uh make file work a whole lot easier. That's important when you're working with your hands. Yeah, and when you're doing like uh 30 knives with file work it gets uh pretty time consuming. So <laughs> makes it a little little less strenuous and able to sit down instead of stand up at my my old vice that I had on the the end of my workbench. I had to be standing up the whole time. Now I can I've got a pneumatic chair, a craftsman one. Really want to get one of those viper chairs that keeps uh spanning my uh Facebook and Instagram feed because I keep looking at their their website. You're ever increasing girth. No, Viper chairs are like super like heavy duty made. Uh, they're up in Wisconsin. I think they're in Green Bay, actually. Uh, but it's a USA made chair has really nice. Um, they use like the the wheels from like almost like roller blades. They're big, tall wheels so they don't get uh, caught on little bumps and stuff. And just super nice. You know, you know, Andy and I had this conflict. You're a knife maker. You got to stand up. I mean, I'll give it to you put an anti-fatigue pad on top of the concrete so that when you're 40, hmm, your knees aren't shot out, but come on, man, you can, you can stand and work. Yeah. When they make stand up desks now, office people don't even sit down anymore. I stand, Are you saying you're softer than an office person? I stand at the grinder, but when I'm doing my handle scales and my uh, file work, <laughs> I like to sit down. Uh huh. 
because that's that's when I get to like take my uh, full face respirator off and I can actually like drink a soda and stuff while I'm sanding. They're doing file work. Yes, your lord. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I don't think I have any more shout outs. You got any more shout outs? Uh, that is the suf- sufficiency for tonight. All right. On to the new segment, Dan's Rants. Yes. And I got to be honest with y'all, I don't even know what's going to come out today. I've had four or five things that I wanted to rant about. I was going to spread them over uh, some podcasts, and then I got side. Well, here's the deal. All right. Oh, there's show notes. I'm going to follow those. I got two things I want to touch on today. And first of all, let me admit right up front, I was guilty of this. When I was in my my late apprentice stage, when I yeah, I was in like the $80, $120 knife standpoint, and I needed to make more money. I had the idea of more expensive handle materials will bump the, the value of my knife. Really, what I did was ruin some really good handle materials. Look, guys. You need good symmetry. You need to execute your grinds well. You need to shape your handles well. If you're not at that stage yet, adding really expensive handle material is not going to improve the value of your knife. It's just going to ruin good handle materials. In my case, it was stabilized coral. I, I was at that point, I was making a usable knife, but it wasn't a really good it was a usable knife, but I've, I felt like I needed to make a little more money. So I invested in handle materials. And what I did was instead of making a $120 knife, that was a $200 knife. I made a $120 knife with some really jacked up stabilized coral handles. If you, you, I mean, there's some phenoms out there that early on are pulling good symmetrical grinds and the lines are clean and their handles have got good contours, but dude, that wasn't me. That's probably not you. If you're not 50, a hundred knives into it, if you're not getting really good symmetry throughout your handle, don't ruin some ivory or mammoth tooth or any of that other really expensive materials. It's not actually increasing the value of your knife because the value of your knife comes from blade geometry, balance, symmetry. If those things aren't on, putting really expensive handle material on your knife is just ruining handle material. Stick with your Mercadas and your G10s. You want to do some crazy, uh, some crazy fiber, some of that kind of stuff, go for it. But don't ruin really high-end materials until you're ready to be there. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> and I'm doubling down on a rant because um, there's some guys I follow. This guy happens to be a uh, – he's a vet. He was reserve in the Special Forces. Um, was in a pretty brutal car accident that involved some really significant burns. Um, and I, I just happened to follow him and it caught my attention, uh, a couple of his posts and I happened to notice the comments on it and they were pretty brutal. They were stuff 
that you wouldn't have said to a man's face. And it, I, I want to touch on this, this internet culture of you can say whatever you want because you know you're not going to get punched in the face. The man's got third-degree burns over a significant portion of his body. He's got no lips. Most of the cartilage in his nose was burned away. Um, and he's making some posts. You know, he's accepted that he is who he is, and he's got to just live the life that he's got left. But some of the comments that I saw, you, you wouldn't have said that when you were three years old. Why is it a bunch of supposedly grown individuals are talking like they're three years old just because they're on the Internet? I got to take a minute and, and center myself. And this goes to every part of our industry, other people's industry. People will say hurtful, small, petty things. And I don't know if it's because they think they're funny. I don't know if it's because they know there's going to be no consequences. But before you go commenting on somebody's stuff, you don't know what they've been through. This particular guy, you can take a look at his face and get an idea of what he's been through. Nine months of skin grafts was it. Why are you going to say nasty, small-minded things? If you've got something helpful to say, I mean... I've private messaged some ni- some young up-and-coming knife makers with some advice that I wouldn't have said publicly. But why are you going to be nasty to somebody on the Internet? I mean, yeah, sure, they're not going to come find you and punch you in the face. But if you wouldn't say it to their face, why are you going to say it? And that's all I've got to say about that tonight. Okay, Dan's Book Corner. We talk about a lot of industrial texts on the podcast, but I'm going to expand your mind. I'm going to open your horizons. I'm going to make you look a little further down the road. And tonight we're going to talk about On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. If you've got a concealed carry permit, if you carry frequently, if you study combative arts, you really should read this book. Um, it talks a lot about the psychology involved in that, what it takes to break down some of the cultural conditioning, and then what it takes to put those safeties back on. It's a really fascinating book. I normally don't go for really technical text. But this was one that is, I mean, it is a very technical text, but it was enjoyable reading and it deep dives into the psychology of what it takes both to be involved in violence and recover from that. So if you are military, if you're law enforcement, if you conceal carry, if you study combative arts, If you are someone who thinks that they're going to be involved in life or death situations, it is a great book to read to help to understand the psychology behind that. And that's Dan's Book Corner for today. On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And it looks like Kyle's putting that in the show notes. So, Where can people find that book? 
Uh, I got it on Amazon. Okay. And they have both an audio version on um, audible.com and I I got the paperback on Amazon. And that was called what again? Uh, I'll, I, you know what? I'll actually not be a useless, lazy um, huh. talent. And I'll put the link in while, uh, while we're doing the show today. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. You know, I'm, we're trying new things today. <laughs> All right. So you, all right, let's get to the interview. Sounds great. Oh, no, go ahead. What's that? It is. Um, as y'all have probably, I think I've talked about this before. I am brutally dyslexic. Yeah. I, I don't read unless there's a really significant value to it. And this book was actually, I didn't listen to this one. I actually read the text and it was worth it. Okay. So tonight's guest, we've given you a few hints. Some knucklehead may have let it slip. Um, full disclosure, in my early days when I was was establishing myself, he worked with me um, and was an absolute prince. Um, I was a young maker trying to figure things out. I wanted to do a project with him. And the amount of time that he spent hand-holding me, walking me through the process, coaching me around some mistakes that young people were going to make. I, I really don't think he could have made money, but he was really patient and understanding and talking to other people in the industry. I found out that it wasn't just me. I mean, for a while I wanted to think I was special and it turns out he's just a really good person. So full disclosure up front, I, I've got a bias, but this gentleman is a pillar in the knife community he has started in the early days and have moved through all the changes of this industry, especially with the bushcraft community. It is the one, the only Mr. LT Wright. How are you doing tonight, LT? I'm doing great, guys. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I'm excited to get to know a little bit more about you. I've I've listened to some of your podcast stuff, so I, I know a, a few things to direct some of the conversation. But for the people gotcha. that don't know you too well, we always like to start with, where did you grow up and get started? Well, well, I grew up in Colliers, West Virginia, uh, Fallensby, West Virginia area, actually. I live in Steubenville right now, so I'm across the river from where I grew up. And I, I was there until I was about 19 years old. And then I moved to Northern Virginia. I lived in Fredericksburg area for a number of years with my wife, and we had a construction company down that in that way. And uh, did a few different things in my life. I taught martial arts full time for about a ten year period in the nineties. Yeah, and then moved back to this area where my wife and I both grew up, and. Uh, I was working for a stair company when early on before I started in and, and making knives full time. So uh, we moved back to the area where we originally grew up and been here ever since. Uh, so what was your first first knife that uh, you remember having uh, as an influential young boy? Okay, the first one I remember having because <laughs> yeah. I feel like me and my friends uh, – I just I can remember having a Herter's catalog knife. I don't know if either one of you guys remember the Herter's catalog. Probably mm -hmm. in the seventies, 
And I'll bet you could have got this knife out of the herder's catalog for $5. I mean, it was literally uh, very much similar to an old hickory butcher knife. Well, my dad had got the herder's catalog, and it was an outdoor catalog, like Field and Stream or something like that. And Mm -hmm. he ended up getting one of those knives. And I just... I fell in love with this thing, and all of a sudden, I just would carry it around everywhere. Me and my buddies go play Tarzan or Daniel Boone in the woods. I'd have this knife on my side. And then in the garage one day, I found this old, really odd-looking knife with some crazy handles that didn't fit or anything. I was like, what is this? So I asked my dad about it. He said, oh, it's a knife I made. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, it used to be a meat cleaver when I was a kid, and I just took the angle grinder and just turned it into a knife. Well, I thought that was cool. So I carried mm-hmm. that around for a number of years as a young guy. Uh, and, and I liked that quite a bit. And then I guess my first real knife, one Christmas, I'm trying to think if I was maybe 10, 11 years old, I got a buck 124. And I was, in, okay. you know, it, it's a Bowie style knife. When you're 10, it's, it's, it's huge. It's five feet long. You know, it's, it's yeah. awesome. A buck 124. I was just tickled to death. And I still have that knife today. I actually, I still have the other two that I just mentioned, the Herder's Catalog knife and that yeah. homemade one of my father's. I have all three of those knives still today. So what kind of knife is the catalog knife? Is it like a fixed blade or? Yeah. Uh, actually, all of those are fixed blade. The, mm-hmm. I, the, the Herder's Catalog knife, it actually said that Herder's company or something was branded into the wooden handle it was very kephart in design actually okay so that's probably where where the genesis look always stuck in my brain was mm-hmm. from this original knife that i had as a kid and i love that we knife. always go back to our beginnings yeah I, I you know there was something that drew me back that way and and the closest thing i could tell you to unless you just kind of looked up herds catalog knife it had a thumb bump on the back of it and it was a, a, a wooden handled knife. It was interesting. And I just loved that thing. It was my carry knife all through my young days. You know, there, there's something about that. I mean, it's not just that it's a really effective tool. It's the first dangerous weapon that you were trusted with. It, and maybe it's just me, but I think there's some resonance be about it's not just a tool, but it's a dangerous tool that makes that first knife, it, it imprints on you and you never really get away from that. You, you definitely have to, when, when you get your first knife, there is a level of respect when, when you go from, hey, I have all these cool things as a kid and then, then you're handed this tool, this knife, a, a different level of understanding, respect, responsibility comes into play now because you can hurt yourself as well as someone else with with a misuse of the tool. So totally agree. It, it does raise your level. Uh, I don't know, your right to young manhood, maybe. That's step first step into that place. Yeah, it's the first time you're trusted with something dangerous. Yep. So as you know, a key component of our podcast is the Dan Kyle scale. And how you met your wife and where does that fall on the Dan Kyle scale? So what is the, what is the LT right moment of epiphany? How is it that you met your wife? I met my wife at a disco and 
19. Ooh. I know. <laughs> she loves it. She's probably rolling her eyes. No, this is feeling much more Dan than Kyle. <laughs> I need a win these days. Uh, I was eight. I must have had to be 18 years old. 18 years old. I met her at a disco. I thought she was a blonde. She's actually a redhead because of the lights of the disco balls and stuff. So I, I thought she was a blonde that night. I knew the minute that I saw her, I think I even told one of my friends that I was going to marry that girl. I was totally smitten with her. I don't know that she was with me, but that's okay. She, 37 years later, she's still we still like each other quite a bit. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was at a disco. It was, uh, I had asked her out and well, we met there. So we, I don't even know that we danced more than one time, honestly. And I, I had asked her for a phone number. She actually gave me her actual phone number and not someone else's. So that was a good sign to start with. And then, mm-hmm. uh, that's key. We had set up, this is the part we had set up a date for the following Saturday, I believe. And then I talked to her once or twice. Well, she wanted to change it to Wednesday, and I didn't know why. I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. I, you know, I get to see you sooner. Heck yeah. So we went out on a Wednesday, and uh, a few years later, she explained to me that she wanted to go out with me on a Wednesday in case she didn't like me. She didn't ruin her weekend. So I went <laughs> <out>. <laughs> so, but She's a planner, that one. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we fell in love. And, yeah. So, but it was at a disco. I and and the song I remembered. Journey was real big at that time. Um, Forever yours. Still is, by the way. And, oh yeah, Neil Sean is guitar player extraordinaire. And we, Wheel in the sky is still in my workout. I remember wow. Journey so, playing, and our and our and our song was Toto. Help me hold on or hold on by Toto. So those were a couple of songs I remember playing that night at the disco. It was actually called The Dancer. It was in Weirton, West Virginia. It's no longer there. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know many discos that are still in, in existence. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't hear myself you know, say I'm that until it came out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Redhead, Met in a Disco. I'm going to say this is a win for Team Dan. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. I'm, I'm calling it. Give it hell. LT earned it. <laughs> nice. Um, so how and why did you get started knife making, LT? Well, I, I had always liked knives. I mean, literally since I was a kid, as you said, I, I just remember running around the woods. If you're going in the woods, you got to have a knife. So me and my buddies were playing in the woods and you literally wake up. You put on your, your clothes, your T-shirt, and you grab your knife, put it in your pocket, or put it on your belt, and you just ran and played in the woods all day. Whether you used the knife or not, you just kind of had it with you. Mm-hmm. Well, I always liked knives, and I guess I semi-collected. Not, not really, but uh, I, I, I bought enough that I, was, I, I liked to have knives around. And over the years, just always had a kind of a back interest in on, you know, kind of in the back of my mind. I, a buddy of mine, after I had moved from Northern Virginia back to where we are now in Steubenville, a, a buddy of mine says, hey, there's a gun show up here at the Harv, which is a casino up in Chester. And he's like, hey, you want to go? I'm like, well, heck yeah, I like gun shows. So we went up there and, you know, walking through and I'm looking at 
ammo and different things. And I came across this table with all these knives laying on it and some tomahawks laying on it. I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. What is this all about? Well, it turns out the guy, his name was R.W. Wilson. Well, he lived local right across the river, um, you know, 10, 15 minutes from where I was living. And he was a knife maker. He worked at Weird and Steel. And he offered to teach me how to make knives. So I had an opportunity to learn from a fantastic, I mean, he's one of the original guild members, you know, a fantastic knife maker that was willing to take some time and, and teach me how to, to make knives. So that I started doing it kind of a little bit at, at night. You know, I would go over there and do a little bit of um, messing around with knives, watching him make knives. And I had made a kit knife for my dad uh, to, to start working toward the business side of things, I guess. I made a kit knife for my dad for Christmas as a gift. Just, you know, I was a carpenter. I would put on wood handles, just having some fun. Yet the kit knife, the, the knife's already hardened. It's already ground. You're just kind of doing the fit. You know joinery. You know working with wood. Yeah. And, and, and it was fun to do that. You know, actually, I think I made the sheath for him, too. You know, hand-sewed a leather sheath. Just that kind of thing. Well, he had taken it to work and showed his friends. Well, they, a few of those guys wanted them. All of a sudden, I had orders. And I was like, I'm not a knife maker. I made you this for a gift. You know, <laughs> that was the... You are now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was like, okay, well, I don't know what to charge, but I'll figure it out. And started making a few of those knives as a gift for his friends. And that money that I collected from that, I took to RW and gave $600 to him. And he built my very first grinder. Mm. And I still use that grinder still today. It's, it gets turned on every day. It's right in my row of things that I work on. So that grinder is still in operation. Had I not come across RW at that time at that gun show on a fluke, I don't know that I would have been a knife maker because I, I didn't see, um, I don't know how to say it. I, I, I don't know if I would have gotten beyond the, the kit knife maker and, and turned into a quote knife maker. Uh, it, it, it was that opportunity that he happened to be there at the right place, right time kind of thing, you know? And then, and it, it'll, it led me down the road where I am today for sure. The vast majority of makers that we've talked to, it's it's a fluke that they got into it. It's mm -hmm. it's kind of this odd but fun common thread of I never planned on being a knife maker. It just kind of happened. And the next thing I knew, the passion took me and and that's what I was doing. But and maybe it's because the industry is fairly young. At least here in the States, the, the custom side of it is. Mm -hmm. No one grew up wanting to be a knife maker. Just the next thing they knew, they were a knife maker, and they realized that's what they should be doing. Yeah, as a, as a young guy, I didn't even know that people were knife makers. I just thought companies made knives. You know, I didn't know yeah, individuals made knives. We had K-Bar, we had Buck. You know, I, I just thought of it that way. Uh, when, when RW we offered... Had, we had Buck. What's that? No, go ahead. I was going to say, when R.W. 
took the, or asked or said he would teach me and gave me that opportunity. Um, I, I went over to his house and I remember walking in. He has to, he had his, his shop in his one car garage and he had a den down in the, in the basement. Well, he let me in the door there and we walked into the, the office area, I guess, den. And he had some tomahawks arrayed on the wall and they were very, very good. I don't remember there were 10 or 11 or something up there. And I said, oh, wow, those are very nice tomahawks like that. And he goes, oh, yeah, those are the ones I made for the movie Jeremiah Johnson. And he turned around and walked on into the shop. And I'm standing there with my mouth Whoa. open going, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What did you just say? <laughs> he goes, you know, and I, I followed him in and he's like, those, those are the tomahawks I made for the movie Jeremiah Johnson in the 70s. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like one of my favorite movies of all time. And you're the guy that made the tomahawk? Oh, my gosh. So I was like on cloud nine then, right? Like I get to learn how to make knives from the guy who made these tomahawks. So that was, that was very cool. That was the one uh, being broke of leg and sound of mine. I leave my Hawkins 50 caliber <laughs> to the man that buries me. <laughs> was that Hatchet Jack? <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we're on the same page now. I wasn't yeah. sure. I, I was taking a risk. Robert Redford. Oh, it was a fantastic movie. Yep. No, no doubt about it. That was Sad, phenomenal. Sadly, sadly, R.W. passed this last year, uh, and and we've lost him. But he was uh, he was a very good teacher to me. Uh, taught me more than making knives. He used to let me travel with him when I was a young guy, and I would go and he would give me a a two foot two foot by two foot section of his table that I could put my knives on. <laughs> and, uh, but I got to, I got to learn how to interact with the public across the table by enter, you know, watching him and talking with people and seeing what the public was interested in. And it helped me develop that side of the knife business too. So I, yeah, I owe him a lot. That's a hugely valuable skill that a lot of people don't appreciate. Yes. Um, they don't they don't they're not aware of the customer facing side of it when they're makers and it frequently bites people uh th this is exactly true i've often told people a million times the easiest part of the knife make or in the knife business is making the knife the other things are the hard part running the business talking to people customer service shipping receiving <laughs> that's the right. hard part Making a knife, there's nothing to it. You put your earbuds in and grind. You know, you have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. I self-selected for an industry where I don't have to talk to people. So when it comes time to actually run the business and talk to people, that was a that was a hard lesson for me. Finding handle material sometimes well, is hard for me right now, especially with everybody with supply chain stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. We get get customers that order specific stuff. Uh, another thing a lot of new knife makers should learn right out of the gate, too, is when someone is buying your product and they're looking at your product, they're buying into you just as much as they are that tool. Yep. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I've had customers that have been with me since day one, uh, lifelong friends, not customers. You know what I mean? They, they've changed. I've gone camping with them, yep. traveled with them. I've been to their, their home for dinner. It, it is it's an amazing industry to be in. Uh, it, it's been a fun journey for sure, but it, it's, it's work though. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And it, I got some great advice that people are buying your passion and your authenticity 
as much as they're buying your knife. Mm-hmm. Your knife may be great, but there's other knives that are will perform at least pretty close. Yeah. What they're buying is you. They're buying your passion, your authenticity. They're buying your brand. And you've got to be willing to be upfront and, and give them that. Or I guess it would be more accurate to say share that with them. Right. Yeah. I, I've always thought that the, the hardest place in the world to sell a knife is at the blade show because you've got 15 other, 1,500 other sellers there selling fantastic product. And if you can sell product in that room, then they're, they're buying not only a, a great tool from you, but as you said, they've plugged into you. They're, they're interested in you as a person, as a maker, as a company. And that is very important. And, and that's a fairly knowledgeable and jaded market. I mean, the guys yes. at Blade Show typically have been around. You, when they buy from you, they see something. Absolutely. So from the from the design perspective, where where do you get your inspiration for your designs? Sometimes, uh, well, when I first started out, I have I didn't really have any feedback coming in. You know, when you're when you're first new, so I was going off of my gut, what I liked. I kind of I wanted to go that direction, and so the the early stuff was what I what I thought was cool, you know, and, and you kind of go that direction. And then the advent of the having the internet come on and people sending you emails, or I spent a lot of time going to gun shows in the early days. I, my wife and I were probably traveling to gun shows three weekends a month back in the early days, easy, wow. if not four, we were at a show. And that was an education. Is that when you, were, when you were selling? Yeah. Well, yeah, when I was first becoming a maker. So I'm selling the designs that I thought were cool. You know, so we would take, right. I, I remember driving six hours to Indianapolis with maybe nine or 10 knives total. That's all we had, you know, and it was all, each one of them was a one-off and we went out there and set at a gun show for three days to sell those 10 knives. But so, so the first designs were just things that I thought were cool, not, you know, pretty much. And then you start, as I said, you're sitting at all of these gun shows so many times and guys would come by and say, man, I really like that. But if it was an inch longer, okay, you know, mm-hmm. or if it was, if it was a, a spear point instead of a drop point, and I'd start, you know, taking these mental notes and I'd start just logging this stuff away. And then after a while, I was like, wow, I, I should start looking into these other things because I've been asked for a orange handle knife 15 times. Why haven't I made one yet? And I had to rethink what I want to do. It's like, am I doing this because I just want to make a few knives and sell them? Or do I want to go somewhere with this? Because if I want to go somewhere with this, I need to start listening and seeing what the market and the and the customer are interested in having as opposed to just what I feel like making. Now, that didn't mean that it wasn't cool and, and I was selling stuff. But as it developed, I started listening to the consumer. And that helped me. I guess gate, guide me in those designs. So in, in Andy's shop, the the question is: Do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? Mm-hmm. You know, a knife maker is running a business. He he takes feedback from his customers. He he builds his his portfolio. It's usable knives. A guy that makes knives just makes whatever he wants to. 
Exactly. And you're right. You At some point, you do need to figure out which one of those you want to be because there is a financial difference <laughs> in the two. And, and you know what? Doing it for a hobby, there is nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you can be either one you want to be, but be honest with yourself about what you want to be and then do that. Yeah. Hey, some of the, some of the hobby guys out there that just do it because they love it, some of the best knife makers I ever saw. I mean, they're just fantastic. There's no doubt about it. And they love it. They love what they're doing. And, and God bless them. I, and I wish them the best. I never, I never really had that. Once I saw that people would give me money for something that I made like that, which was, you know, the first few knives when they sell, you just went, wow. I, I don't want to say that it was easy, but it kind of was. You know, and it was, it was so surprising that a guy would give me 100 bucks for a knife because at the time... I probably wouldn't have paid fifty dollars for a knife. You know, it just that's just my brain. You know, mm-hmm. so when I saw that started happening, it didn't take me very long to say, "I think I can do this for a living." You know, if, if this keeps going the way it is, so mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I can remember not wanting to do it as a hobby, maybe more than the first year that I was messing with it, and then I was like, "This is this is cool." I think. I'm going to pursue this as a career. I think I'm going to head that direction. So, the the tipping point for me was my second or third blade show that I was that I was on my own. Beth had come down to help me with the booth, and Friday morning she looked around and said, "You could make money at this." And at that moment, it went from a hobby to a job. <laughs> yeah. When you when you first got started uh, doing the knife stuff, uh, I assume you were doing something else too. You kind of were were doing it night and weekends, or how did that all start out? Yeah, I was working at a stair shop building custom staircases. We did high end curved stairs, and I would come home at night uh, from the shop and pretty much kiss my wife hello, head down to the basement. My shop was under my front porch in the basement. And I would go down there and she would call me for dinner. And then she would generally come down later, oh, at least two or three nights a week and go, hey, it's bedtime. Come on. You know, that kind of thing. And then, (laughs) yeah, I can remember most Saturdays, if there wasn't something that I had to do, I found myself under the front porch making knives. I just was loving it. So, yeah, there's a. so, So you were mainly doing stock removal knives at that point? I assume since you were under the the front porch. Yeah, I did. I started out doing stock removal. Remember, I, I, the first thing I did was mess around with some kit knives. So then okay. RW was a stock removal maker. So I, I started uh, doing stock removal knives. And then I ran into some guys at gun shows that were forge guys. Uh, Bruce Godleski is one of them. And Greg Gottschalk was another one. And my forging skills came from both of those gentlemen. Mainly the tomahawk forging that I learned was from Bruce Godletsky. And then um, like forging of knives came from Greg Gottschalk. And they're, they're both really great makers. And they're both over here in Pennsylvania. So I, I messed around with that for a while. I never had a forge set up here at my house. So I would always go to their house on the Saturday, you know, Saturdays, like, hey, what are you doing? You got anything going on this Saturday? How about I bring some stuff up and we do some forging? And they were, you know, it was really cool. They both 
were very receptive about that. When I decided to go full-time knife making, however, I also then, like when you make the, the hobby to full-time job, forging stock removal, I had that conundrum. I can't forge knives fast enough to make a living. At this at that time I could not. You know, I couldn't yeah. command the price. I, I I knew where my market was and I knew if I wanted to go full time, I needed to stay in the stock removal. So I kind of stayed in that area. Now I enjoyed foraging and I would do it again and probably will do some more in the future, but to run a business at that time. And even today, I still feel like this is where I need to be. Yeah. Do you want to be a knife maker or a guy that makes knives? Yeah, exactly. What's your favorite knife? What's the, what's the knife that you use the most right now? Me personally is our, the Genesis. I have one of the very first Genesis that we made that I carry in my day pack. I use that uh, for everything camping wise that, you know, that is the one. Now, everyday carry, I have a folder that we make and we made very few of them. And I use that folder probably more than anything else to open boxes, sharpen pencils, you know, the daily knife stuff that you, you do. The, the unglamorous 90% of what you actually do with a knife. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Um, and this is a little bit of a right turn. Um, but I found out a while ago about this and I'm just curious. Um, you taught martial arts for a while. What, what style did you teach? Uh, Kempo and jujitsu. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was a, a member of ACA, which is out of Charlotte, North Carolina, American Kempo Karate Association. And I have ranked with both Kempo and jujitsu. Uh, was it uh, Japanese jujitsu? Yes. Traditional or is it more the Brazilian? No, it was traditional Japanese jujitsu. Oh. Yeah. You want to challenge him to a sparring I, match, and, Dan? And then, Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, do ko, I do Kodakon judo. We don't do the whole kick you in the face. <laughs> but, I, you know, I was able to, uh, during the 90s, uh, we had a, martial arts school and I was building houses during the day and teaching martial arts at night. Made a lot of good friends that way. That also was part of my love of knife stuff because we, you know, knife defense, knife fighting, whatever you want to call it, all those things that go with it. And I had the inverse. I was, uh, I was, when I started making knives, I was competing at a national level. So I would make knives during the day and then train at night. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was I was studying Kodokan judo, so when when I heard that uh, the used to teach, I was just curious. Yep. No, I loved it. I you know it was uh, definitely a, a big part of my life. I mean, I was what ten years old when Bruce Lee came on the scene. How could you not be a ten year old boy? I mean, goodness, Enter the Dragon. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's all I ever wanted to do then for a while. <laughs> it, as every young man should. Yeah. So uh, if you've listened to LT's podcast at all, uh, you know, he's a very big camper. Uh, what's one of your what's your ideal camping trip? Uh, going anywhere with my wife and kayaking. 
we have gotten into the kayaking the last few years, and it is an absolute blast. We we wanted to do it years ago. Life gets in the way. It didn't happen. A, a few years ago, we decided, you know what? Let's do this. Let's get to kayaks. So to go camping uh, and kayaking. Now, I'm not one of those lightweight backpacker guys. <laughs> I have a fridge in the back of my, you know, we, we take a fridge and plug it into the back of the Jeep. You know what I'm saying? Uh, now, I do hammock camp. I like to hammock camp. My wife does not. My, my days of roughing it are past me. We have an easy up cube. <laughs> we, I don't know if you've seen these easy up cubes. They're 10 by 10 easy ups, just the regular easy up. And they have a tent that fit, drops right under and it's a cube. It's 10 by 10. Well, we Ooh. have that that we go camping with and we have two cots so that we can sleep up off of the ground. So when we go yep. kayaking, it, it's just a great time. And the funnest part of that is my wife makes some fantastic camp food. So we just have, you know, part of going camping is eating good, right? So, mm -hmm. yes, that is. So my ideal trip is honestly just about anywhere on the lake with my wife. We have, we went up to Pima Tuning Lake up here and the eagles, we, we spent one afternoon just watching eagles in the tree. You know, I was like, gosh, so that was just such a good time. When this devil's dandruff melts, if you are willing to make a pilgrimage south, We've got a, a, a fair piece of property on the Saluda River and love to paddle. Um, if you guys want to come down and play. Oh, I, we were trying to figure out where we want to go this year. You know, with the pandemic, we, we have a farm in West Virginia. We kind of just went there and hit the, there's a 300 acre lake. And we kind of, that was our home base. We'd go down there and hit the lake and, and do that quite a bit. We didn't venture out. And then this past year, we did go to, a few different lakes and we had a good time. So we're got to figure out what we're going to do this coming year and venture out even further. But uh, man, just a kayak, just, just having time on the water. She absolutely loves it. And uh, we just have such a good time. So your, your kayaking trips, do you put a tent and stuff in there and kayak with it? Or is that mainly like come back to the same point you launched from and then came from the truck? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much uh, we'll camp and then launch and then come back there. So if we go for a two- or three-day weekend, yeah, we're always coming back to a campsite that we set up. I've never done a, a kayak trip where you you pack in your tent and everything. Again, I don't think she's being up for that. I'd have to go with some of the <laughs> other guys, you know, that wanted to do that. And I would. I'd throw my hammock into the front of my kayak and go out with some guys, but... I like kayak with her so much. I kind of, you know, you, you do it the way she wants to do it. It's fun for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I totally, totally get it. But when we, you know, we outfitted the Jeep with, with a, a, we have a Dometic fridge in our Jeep. So we're able to take everything that we need. We have a scottle that we cook on, uh, you know, another camp stove if we need it. Uh, one of my yeah. favorite pieces of gear for my Jeep is the Slumberjack road tarp it's worth every bit of the 125 bucks it is absolutely the piece of kit you cannot do without you had that at um at uh lee's at um yes. downtown cutlery yes you're right i had it, that kicked off the back of the jeep and it inspired me and it turns out it will also fit on a gen one forerunner 
Oh, right on. <laughs> yeah, I love that thing. I'm telling you, man. There, there's times where I will take the Jeep, like we go out, we'll take the Jeep, and I'll tie that to the Jeep and back up close enough to where I run my hammock off of my roll cage and onto a tree, and I use that tarp oh, nice. as my tarp on my hammock. It's it's great. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So you, you had mentioned the scottle. That was uh, one of the things that I was, uh, I heard you talk about a little bit on your podcast uh, so that thing's mm-hmm. main kind of like a, a walk with legs, right? Like a curved uh, cooking. I, I pretty much, yeah. It, and it 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 has a learning curve to the cooking, but the cleanup and everything, it's just it's a nice thing because you just cook everything on it, move everything off to the side a little bit, get everything hot. I mean, we've done. My nephew does uh, biscuits or not biscuits. Uh, oh, he steams cinnamon rolls on there we've done eggs and bacon and just you know scrapple you, you name it we cooked, cooked steaks on there i think he's even done pancakes it, it is a great tool and easily cleaned up easily packed in real good for for car you know the car camping you're not going to backpack it yeah yeah but we've established that at this point we've earned comfort I've been cold and I've eaten eaten dehydrated meals and I have proven myself. And at this point that has bought me the luxury of being able to go in the cooler and uh, getting a cold frosty beverage. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me too. I don't, I don't want to camp hard anymore. You know, you just don't, you want to camp easy. You want to enjoy it. I I mean, weekends are made to have fun. Why make it rough? (laughs) Life is hard enough already. Yep. Yeah. So on the the business side, uh, we mm-hmm. touched a little bit on how you got into knife making, but at what point did the, the company LT Wright, when did that form? When did you start being LT Wright Knives? Uh, I can never remember exactly what, because yeah, it, it didn't seem important, I guess, to remember, so I can never get the exact time but i remember coming home and my wife and i discussing it and saying hey this this is kind of like we can go full time here and i had ended my job i gave my notice and i said you know i'm gonna step away i want to do this thing with this knife making so we did that we stepped away and immediately the paycheck stopped so i mean you got to hit the ground running i i always felt like i have a good work ethic you know, I get up every day at 4.30, Monday through Friday. That is just what I do. It's just, you know, I'm that guy. And I I just kept that going when I left my other job. And I probably worked even more hours to get established, get up and run it. But I, I kept that kind of work ethic. No matter what was going on, you just positive energy, focus, and just keep moving forward. So it was uh, it was a lot of work. It was hard in the sense that if you're going to start a business, it's going to be hard. You know, it was mm-hmm. it had to be hard. You have to learn. You have to hit some brick walls so that you can figure it out as you're going going through, so that you can make yourself better when that bigger brick wall comes. You're going to be able to climb it. So, you know, when we decided to do that, I'm going to say it was in the winter of 2006, maybe when we went full time. I came home and my wife said, yeah, I think you can do it. I think 
think we're off and running. So we did it. I remember she used to take pictures of the knives. She would lay them out on our bed on the because we had a, a decent looking comforter. And that's where the knife early knife pictures were done on our bed. And and we did that. And I I was full time, went to again, worked Monday through Friday, jumped in the Jeep on Friday night and drove to a show. That was pretty much the norm for that first period of time. After we got up and running as LT Rate Knives, then my friend Dan, we created Blind Horse Knives. And that year we ended up going at, Blind Horse Knives was only created, uh, wow, month and a half to two months before the first Blade Show we attended. I had my table lined up as LT Rate Knives. Because if, if you remember back in the early days, there was a bit of a waiting list there for a while. Mm-hmm. And then there wasn't, and then there was, and I don't know where it is now. But So I already had a table set up for LT right knives. And when we decided to create blind horse knives, we did that and, and ended up there the first year. So we, we had blind horse knives for a number of years. And then when we decided to go our separate ways, I just took my original name, website, I already owned it, you know, had it just shelved. Uh, actually, I had my original stamp that I had made, so we just kind of came back to the LT Rate Knives, and we've been going that direction ever since. And even from the very first, uh, you know, the very first week being full-time knife maker, I remember just working like crazy and couldn't wait to get to a show to, to show my stuff and and talk to people. It was it was such an exciting time. That's a long time ago now, you know. What was the industry like back then? Uh, was it was it all shows? Was it was the internet forums kind of kicking in, or just barely, just barely? Um, trying to think, it it was uh, the Knife Network was the one that actually had a bushcraft thread on it, and when we started making the bushcrafter, we actually sold a hundred knives on that the knife network i'm pretty sure it was called the knife network back at that time because prior to that like in the 2000 you know just at the beginning of the internet it was way different than it is today i mean it absolutely was that's why i think it was important for me to get my feet wet by physically going to shows as many times as we did you know we literally had to had to be out there in front of people yeah, it's great to great to meet makers and stuff too when you go to shows and stuff like that. Um, even if oh, you yeah. can talk to them and stuff over social media and stuff now, it's totally different getting to meet them in person and talk and stuff. Yeah, and YouTube wasn't a, a, a big thing at that time. Where today you can get YouTube certified in just about anything. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I I want to get one of those. Uh, I see it on Facebook a bunch in the marketplace. It says YouTube certified mechanic. I want to put that on my, uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, <toolbox>. absolutely. <laughs> in all fairness, you know, in all fairness, there's, I had to, we had to get the door panel off of my Jeep to do something one time. Got to go to YouTube. That's where you go to find out how to do these things. Well, it, it amazes me with YouTube that like, there's a lot of stuff that I do and figure out and stuff. And I just can't believe there's that many people that, not only figure it out kind of the same way I did, but then actually take the time to pull out a, a video camera and edit it and put it up on YouTube and stuff for people. 
way more effort than I do for most of the stuff that I figure out how to do. Yeah, I, I don't want to admit how many times I've had something partially disassembled and then had to go to YouTube. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, but thank goodness it's there. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how have you had to change as the industry changed? You got started fairly early in this wave, but there's been a lot of changes along the way. There, there's no doubt. When I first started making knives, I was a hunting knife guy. I didn't know there was such a thing as a bushcraft knife. You know, when we first started doing it, um, D2 was the steel of choice. Hollow grind was my grind. That's kind of where I started. Matter of fact, that's where I was the first uh, year and a half, two years. And then I started getting, hey, you know, bushcraft, bushcraft, bushcraft. Well, we started gravitating that direction. And now we're known as a bushcraft company, which is fine. I love being in that space. So one of the things that I guess I I learned is you do have to adapt. Don't be stubborn and stay where you're at. If you you want to be in a niche, that's fine. But as you said earlier, do I want to make knives or do I want to be a knife maker? You know, where, where do I have to be? My goal was always to have a knife company. I never set out to be a only work by myself guy in my basement. I did not want that. You know, I, I, I wanted to create a knife company to where there is a time in my life where I can step back a little bit and the knife company can still keep going forward. That was where I wanted to be. So I always had that intention. So as the, as the market changed, and let's face it, these last two or two and a half years that we've been struggling with this pandemic of sorts, it has changed the knife industry the night business and how we do business in general across the board yet again. And uh, thank God for the internet or we would have all been really, really suffering and struggling. So yeah, yeah, because we used to do a lot of in shop stuff. We, you know, giving knife classes, that's an in-person thing. Kydex classes. We used to do that stuff. We would be going to events. There was probably someone from our shop going to an event two and three weekends every month pre-pandemic. So yeah, that changed a lot for us. We had to reevaluate where we wanted to go. I was frequently amazed at how many places y'all were. That you know, Even down here, the Georgia bushcraft and that kind of stuff, that it seemed like mm-hmm. every time I turned around, no matter the size of the gathering, you had somebody there. Yes, and, and we still try to, even like having brand ambassadors and having the opportunity to, to help them get to an event and and have our product with them. So we try to do that from time to time. But yeah, with the, with the pandemic, that has, has shut a lot of that down. And we've been, our dealers are fantastic. We have a great dealer network and they're selling knives as, as quickly as we can ship them to them. And we're shipping knives, you know, almost every week. And we're shipping a lot of knives. As soon as they set them up, the drop gets announced and they're, they're virtually getting sold out all over the place. And, and again, a great place to be at this time. I'm super excited about that and, and very blessed that people like our stuff that much. Yeah. What are some things that uh, you would have done differently when you first got started, you mentioned kind of setting it up to have employees and stuff. Is there anything you would have done a little differently thinking back on it? Uh, you know what? I, I don't 
I don't think so, because when we set out to do it, my wife and I had some goals. And one of it was, one of the goals was we want, everything was out of pocket. You know, we're not borrowing, we're not going in debt. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it by buying or selling something, buying a piece of equipment, you know, making knives, selling knives, buying a piece of equipment. I don't think I would change that because what I was able to learn in the last 15 years or so, it was, uh, again, you, you couldn't have paid a college to teach you those kind of things because you have to learn the goods and the bads on your own. And had I done something differently, I don't know that I would be where I am right now, which I feel is, is a great place. I'm very pleased with where we're at right now. We've done a lot of stuff within our company. I'm, I'm very pleased with what we're doing. You know, post-pandemic, I came back to the table with some things that I wanted to change. And one of the things was, guys, I worked very hard all my life. Construction company, teaching martial arts, beginning of the night company. I was busy, busy, busy. I was always on the go. So we're changing that right now. We're going to structure the business to where we work 40 hours a week but we're going to structure it to where every other Friday we're off. So we have two, three day weekends every month. We're just going to add, take away a little bit of our lunchtime and add a little bit at the end of the day. And we've done that since we went back after the two months shutdown we had. And we are in such a better place. And basically we have 24 three day weekends a year now. And it, to me, Money is a fantastic thing, but having this free time to do hang out with my wife, this is the successful side that I was shooting for. This is where we wanted to be. Yeah, a buddy of mine says that money is time tickets. That you invest so that you can get time to do the stuff you want to do. And his whole deal is I'm trying to get enough time tickets so I can do what I want to do. Hang out with my wife, go to the woods, work on my car. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Right, right. It's got to be, I I, I look ahead and see where you are and and think that that's a path I'd like to see. And there's got to be a great deal of satisfaction of reaching the point that you can start to dictate some of your own terms and go, this is what's important to me. And I'm going to do it now. I've paid my dues. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm where I am. And now I get to do what I want to do. It, it is. And, and you're right. I'm not going to say anyone, you, you don't, you have to pay your dues. And you know, from being a martial artist, you don't walk in and six months later, walk out with a black belt. You have to pay your dues. You have to hit that mat. You have to get up off of that mat 5,000 times before you truly understand. Same thing. You have to screw up you know, hundreds of knives and learn how to fix them <laughs> before you're truly a knife maker. Because that's the biggest thing. And then having employees and learning how to fix theirs, <laughs> that's when you become a knife maker. So, yeah. Working with employees is something I've struggled with. I can fix me, but learning how to communicate to mm-hmm. other people and not just fix their issues, but teach them how to fix them is something I've always struggled with. Mm-hmm. Te- teaching is a uh, it, it's a very difficult thing but you know what one of the things that I, I've learned through teaching 
is that I, I never forget that I'm learning as well because I will inadvertently watch them do something and they actually did it better than I did, you know, and I will then adapt it to my skill set, you know, whatever it is. Like my nephew grinds better than I do now. I'm like, doggone it. <laughs> but that was my goal. My goal as a knife maker and it's, as, you, you know, as a martial artist is to make that student better than you are. Because if I can't make the next knife making generation better than me, then we're going that backwards. We're going to lose everything. So my goal is to make all the guys in my shop better than me. And if they get to that point, that's the excitement. That's the win. And what better proof that you are skilled as a teacher that your students are better than you? Yeah, exactly. And believe me, they are. You know, there's some guys at the shop that are fantastic knife makers. I'm very proud of them. I don't want to give you their name because, you know. <laughs> well, you know, the other ones will get jealous. <laughs> yeah. um, what are some things that, especially as the market has changed, what are some things you point to and say, this is how I was able to grow my business? This is, this is where I was right to focus. Hmm. Uh, a lot of times it was just trying something. And I'll use social media as, a, as an example. We used to have the monthly special. That was an incredible thing back in the blind horse days, the monthly special. People used to send me emails and go, I have this. This is my homepage. I remember the tiger strike. Yeah. They, they would set it up as their homepage. So I started going, why are they so into this that it's like that? So we started paying attention to that and trying different things. When we did, when Instagram, when we started kind of messing with Instagram a little bit, well, we put out a knife called a pronghorn. We only had a couple of them. We just were making something, you know, and it was, it was gone instantly. Well, Lane got a bunch of little texts and emails like, hey, what's about that pronghorn? So we made 10 more and we made Friday drop. Boom, there they are. And they all 10 sold. Then we said, well, that worked. Let's do that again. We did it again. Boom. All of a sudden, the dealers saw that happening. And then now I got 300 and some orders for pronghorns that we didn't even make this knife 30 days ago. So doing those little things that the test. Now, that doesn't mean every time we do something that it works because it doesn't. But when it doesn't work, you move it aside and you go on to that next thing. Social media was learning how to navigate social media and, and making it win for us was, and, and still is, a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Another big win for us is our we have our private forum, the Pout House. We started this a number of years ago, and we have uh, about 500 members, give or take. You know, the number's always going up and down, but there are uh, VIP Buyers Club. It costs money to join, and they have first access to everything. We have, you know, it's a place where they can get together and talk about knives, trucks, camping, you know, guns, you name it. We just, we talk about pipes. You know, some guys are into cigar smoking, so there's a cigar thread. Just a community of like-minded guys, small community, but they're very, very into our brand. So, we have a great connection there. And that is something that I would 
do again in a heartbeat. That has been a huge mainstay for us. You, you can't, the word of mouth advertising that we get from that is, you can't put a dollar amount on it. I mean, there's no way you could pay for this. You couldn't buy enough magazine ads to get the coverage that comes out from a satisfied customer who feels like they're in a brotherhood, which they are. We have a, you know, a very tight knit group of guys who, who are all across the U S and around the world who are like, a, we're brothers, you know, and that is such a cool thing. Um, so a combination of flexibility so that when you hit on something that works, you can do it, but don't overcommit so that you get committed down a path that doesn't work. And then remembering to make the, the human connection. Absolutely. You, you definitely have to, you have to, to, be you know on that human side i guess the other like most important businessy thing now under you know customer services you, you have to you have to win at customer service and we have a replace repair or i'm sorry repair replace or refund policy period that's it there's you don't have to argue with us you're unhappy send it back we will repair replace or refund just that's the end of it there i don't you know it's not even worth and I've had some really silly things come back. You just smile and move on. You know, you just let it roll. I, I had somebody do something really dumb. And it, 11 years, I've only had one knife broken. It's not something you should have been doing with a knife, but they broke it. Mm -hmm. And I was a little frustrated because I had a no questions asked replacement. Right. And we were talking about Ethan earlier, and I I, I was kind of... I was venting to Ethan and he said, you don't understand. This is the best thing that could have happened to you. And I, I was trying to figure out how this was the best thing that could happen to me. And he said, up till now, your guarantee was theoretical. Now it's proven. Yeah. Now you've got people out there going, I did something stupid with my knife and he replaced it anyway. And that kind of becomes a gold standard. I totally agree. I totally agree. The other thing, I, if, if I was a, like given a seminar for new knife makers, answer every email every day during business hours. Now, after 4.30, I don't answer emails, and I don't answer emails on Saturday and Sunday, but I answer every single email Monday through Friday by the end of business. And that is huge. Even if the answer is simply, I'm sorry, sir, I don't have that right now. Can I get back to you tomorrow or the next day? I at least acknowledge the fact that I got an email from them, whatever it is, good, bad, or indifferent. And I will make a note and tape it to my desk. So I do not forget to address whatever, you know, the question may be or, or, or whatever it is. The I, when you're dealing with vendors, when you're dealing with customers, we're all impatient. So if you do that, I, I can't imagine they expect it over the weekends or in the evening. As I said, at 4.30, I shut my work computer off. I don't answer emails after 4.30, but I will at least acknowledge every email every day. And I feel that that is huge for that connection, that customer service. Uh, uh, you know, that one-on-one -on -one with that person. I've been thrown off a couple of times when I, I called y'all and I was mentally, I was fully prepared to leave a voice message. 
There was no way someone was going to answer the phone, much less connect me. And I had to change my footing because I was ready to give the voice message. And now I was talking to a live person and they were actually handling the issue. Um, You threw me off a little bit. Yeah. But, but I, it, it's huge. I mean, usually when I am, am trying to get a hold of a vendor or something, you're calling them because you want to talk to them. <laughs> you need to get an answer on something or you need to order something. So, yeah, when I, when I have a steel supplier and he doesn't call me back for three or four days, I've moved on. I can't yeah. wait. You know, and it's not that I'm impatient. It's like I'm running a business. I, I can't. I can't do this. Because all he would have had to simply do hey, man, we're super swamped. Give me a few days. I would have said fine and walked on and did my work. And then he got back to me a couple of days all as well. But without getting nothing back, you, you know, your brain's like, what's going on? I got to move on. I got to get to steal. I've got customers waiting, blah, blah, blah. Well, you, know. you, you got a room full of guys that you're paying to grind knives. They need steel to grind. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're going to leave me a question mark, I'm going to go find somebody that gives me an answer. Exactly. And, and that's what I'm saying. Communication is huge. So all you brand new knife makers out there, if you learn anything, just communicate. That is the biggest thing. It is the win. And get ahead of it. If they have to call you, you're already on your heels. You know there's going to be a problem. As soon as the problem comes up, if you call them, 90% of the time it's, hey, I get it. I understand. If they have to call you, they're already irritated. And you're on your heels and the conversation is not going to go as well as if you had gotten ahead of it and called your customer. Yep. So you, I mean, I fail at that, but I failed so many times that I finally learned to get ahead of it. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier. You, uh, if you tell somebody you need to get back to them, uh, you put a post-it note uh, on their, on your desk. Is there any other tricks that you use to help keep you organized? Do you um, kind of set out an agenda for the day, whiteboard? Um, what kind of stuff do you guys do to lay out and schedule stuff through the shop? We do have a whiteboard in the shop where we keep score of our uh, grinds, our builds, our finishes, our Kydex, so that we can keep a weekly track on what's going through the shop. I keep notebooks. I probably have too many notebooks, and I'm always jotting down notes to for things that I need to address. Emails get lost so quick because you get so many things coming in, so I will routinely take an email that's important and jot down notes so that I can go back to it. So I put them in my notebook, and then I start crossing things off. But for me, like the taping something to my desk, that becomes super top priority. So when the girls want me to order something, they tape something on my computer screen. So I cannot (laughs) move it aside. I have to physically grab a hold of it to get it out of my way to look at my screen, which is brilliant because it forces me to immediately take care of what they want tended to, whether, you know, whether it be an order or a question. So that works when we do that we have a morning meeting every morning at nine o'clock where we go over and each person in the shop hey what 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 do you got going on where are you at and we talk about i'm grinding knives today we're grinding the batch for the fnra you know whatever it is we're working on 
so that everyone in the shop kind of has an idea of what we're doing. Uh, we work in cycles, which is another post-pandemic thing for us, where we uh, we have our grind, our rough grind cycle, our finished grind cycle, our build cycle, and our finished cycle is what we do. And we we work within those cycles, and there's certain numbers of knives and certain numbers of flats and sabers and scandies broke down throughout those cycles that we work through. So we do have um, the girls set up all of our orders and, and send them out into the shop and, and we have packets and we do things in batches of fives. So we have packets of fives. When, uh, when I set up the dealers years ago, when we wanted them to order in five at a time, so that if I was making five brown knives, I'd put five brown knives together, five green knives. So they would order in batches of five. So it made everything easy. So in the shop, you'll see a bunch of packets sitting there, and each one of those packets have five knives in them. So we know we don't, we don't start 100 knives. We start five and move them on. Then I start the next five and move them to the next station so that I'm not sitting there with a tray with 50 knives on it every packet there's five knives that moves to the next guy and everyone keeps moving this way it, it can get demoralizing to have 20 knives on a tray and you spent all day and you haven't moved the tray yet yes and this is i know you, and this it, it's cool that you're saying that because these five packs are many victories and everyone needs a mental victory 10 times a day and it is huge the difference of positive feeling it gives you to accomplish something even though it's five you have accomplished those five knives are now complete and you moved them on as you said you're going to get those 50 done but it's going to take you all day or half a day tomorrow where i can move these five on and go Woo-hoo, high five and move on and now i do the next five and each time so i have these little victories yeah i i frequently get myself into two pickup batches at a time and then you're you're grinding for like a week and you're like i hate this yeah (laughs) yeah it wears you out it it absolutely does wear you out and um that's why and, and and it was one of those things i had to think i had to come up with a way to make everything pleasant at any point at what we were doing and and Again, making those little victories, that was a, I mean, it almost seems insignificant. And you're almost like, how does that work? I don't know how to explain it, but it does. It does work. Well, you also don't have like one of this one, two of this one, three or two of this one, one of this one. So you can like get a five by 12 piece of Micarta, cut it all up and you have all the handle scales for those five or whatever. So. Oh, exactly. That's why I say the five packs are huge. Uh, you used to do it. We used to do the onesie twosies. You just get confused and frequently put something together backwards. Oh, it was supposed to be brown with black liners, not black with brown liners, you know, or whatever. So this way it's a lot easier to control because you're, you're doing a five pack. You're right. Well, and the onesies, and it, it just makes uh, the onesie twosies are really inefficient. If you look at the amount of labor that you put in to do ones and twos off mm-hmm. versus the amount of labor you put in to finish five, 
the the total amount of right. labor versus how much billable you get is so much better at five than it is at one. Oh, there's there's no doubt about it. Uh, at, you know, doing the onesie twosies, you're looking at that paperwork five times where you do a batch of five, you look at the paperwork once. You know, little tiny things, they add up during a day, during a week. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot that goes into all of these things. To be more efficient and to be more organized, or at least seem to be more organized, uh, this works pretty good for us. We, we kind of, we're making this work for us right now. Um, and I mean, this is obviously kind of a, a moving target, but in a, a general perspective, how do you define your brand? Hmm. I just like to think that we are absolutely uh, a quality-based American-made product. Uh, I mean, we have a good bunch of guys that are just in there. I, I think if someone ends up with one of our knives, they're going to have something that they can pass on, heirloom quality kind of product. Uh, it's still a working man's knife. We're, we're not building safe queens. I mean, our knives go around the world. They've, they've been on survival situations multiple times. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I, I don't know because you're, you're right. It is a moving target. You asked me this in a year and it could be different because of the way the industry may or may not go. But I think the bottom line is stand behind your stuff, build the best thing, best product. Whether, whether, I don't care if it's knives or not, just build the best product you can build, stand behind it and um, be that guy who interacts with your customers. If you, if you want to be a, a great knife maker, man, they're buying a part of you, so be there, you know. I don't know if I answered it the best. That's You did, and there's no – that's one of those – there's no right or wrong. It's. I was just curious on, on how you perceive your brand and how you want to define it, and that that was pretty clear. Yep. One of the things I've always liked about your, your brand is the uh, – you mentioned you guys are truck uh, people when doing a lot of the overland uh, events and things like that. How did you guys come up with the to do like one to one scale kind of camo y knife pattern that you put on a lot of your guys' trucks? <laughs> I can't remember how that came about. <laughs> uh, my wife had that's an honest answer. She, she, she's well, well, because honestly, a lot of times we throw things against the wall, and I have a saying in the shop like Mike and Scott will bring stuff to me, and it's like, you know. I'm not sure what I want, but I know what I don't want. And this isn't it, yeah. you know, or something. I'll, I'll kind of lead them down that road. Well, my wife had a shirt designed where she had the United States and all of our knives in the shape of the United States on a, on a map. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And then I one day we were talking about something, and I, I cannot honestly remember how it came about. Who It was between me, Mike, Elaine, Scott all of us together. And I can't remember exactly who, but I said, man, I always liked zebra stripes. I got a white Jeep. Well, at the time, at the time, I'm sorry, we had a van, our white van. I said, man, it'd be really cool if we could like zebra stripe it. Well, let's use our knives. I'm like, okay. And then getting them one-to-one, that was a fluke. I didn't even expect that. And then all of a sudden I was like, Hey, these are actual size. That's pretty cool. <laughs> 
You know, it was one of those kind of things. And then, like, we had the blacked out windows on the van, and we put LTWK, so the white part we did black, and the blacked out windows we did white. And it was like, hey, that's kind of cool. We did this, you know, the knives down the side of it. And then when we did, when I got my Jeep and it was a white Jeep, it was like, man, I love zebra stripes. And you would not believe how many people at an event will walk by my Jeep, come back and go, you know, those are not. <laughs> I had no idea. Really? You don't say. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, I thought that was zebra stripes. And I said, I know, isn't that, I said, that was what we were shooting for. It's perfect. So it, yeah, it's kind of that way. And then we have uh, Scott's Toyota. My nephew's Toyota's done up, and then we have our white van besides. So it's nice when you go to an event. I'm one of the. I, I'm a firm believer in if you believe in your product, you know, wear your shirts, wear your hats, put it on your your truck. This is you. This is. I'm not ashamed of this. This is who I am. I'm an. I'm this knife guy. We make the best stuff on the planet, in my opinion. I want the world to know. You know, and and it's really cool. And I I, I remember it was uh, about three or four years ago. We were we went to the the blade show, and then the following weekend we had a Jeep event, and we were at this Jeep event. And this guy's walking by, and he's walking by our we're outside. And he's walking by our tent. And he's looking at my truck. He's looking at my nephew's truck, and he's walking back and forth. And then finally he comes up and he goes, "Hey." Were you in Kentucky last week? Yeah. I was like, well, we were driving through on our way to Atlanta. He goes, I saw your Jeep down there. I was like, how <laughs> cool was that? The guy saw my Jeep, you know, three states away on my way to the Blade Show. And now he shows up at another event. And it was enough that it stuck in his head. He had no idea what it was or, or anything. But now he's at a Jeep event going, oh, that's cool. And then he stood there and handled our knives. I don't think he bought anything, but he now knows who's dealt who LT rate knives are. So, and he didn't buy it that time. Right. He didn't buy it right then. But now when he has a friend goes, man, I need to get a good knife. I go, there's this guy, you know, that's all it takes. Word him out. Yeah. He's got this crazy Jeep. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Where do you see the, the industry heading? Uh, do you have any, uh, any ideas or things you're planning on that you want to share uh, moving forward? Uh, right now, honestly, it, it's, it's, it's playing catch up for us. We're, we're, we're sitting on a backlog that started, uh, two weeks after the pandemic came into effect and just has continued to swamp us uh, to the point where our dealers will send in a, a large number of orders with an email that says, I know you can't get to these. I know that you're backlogged. I just wanted to get them in the queue. So right now for us is working on our backlog, which is maybe up to a year right now, eight months. We're, wow. we're pretty That's... backlog. Thank God. It's a fantastic place to be. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand that, but we're working, you know, all that we can. We're putting out more knives now than we ever did pre pandemic because coming back and starting virtually starting again, because I shut down all steel deliveries, all Kydex, all leather, you know, when, when they shut us down and dis- decided we were non-essential. Mm. So when we, when we go back in and, and you know, this, you order steel, which it could be up to 30 days before it gets to you. Yeah. You know, we go to the water jet 
So I, even though we went back to work, we had nothing to work with for a little bit of time. So, you know, all of that snowballed into where we are. And, and again, a great place to be, have a great dealer network. God bless them. Thank them for being out there and thank them for understanding where we're at. And, and everyone's in the same thing. I mean, from our heat treater who has trouble finding people to work, you know, uh, steel supplies. I heard 1095 from a certain steel supplier was on a 10 week backlog. That's a long time. I just ordered another heat treat oven. 20 weeks. 20 yep. weeks. That's June. But what are you going to do? You know, so. Complain that you don't oh, have a heat treat oven. Just put your you order in. <laughs> well, luckily we have to. We were just putting another one online. That was, you know, that's where we're planning on going. But she, I actually got the email today. She said, it looks like early June. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but you know what? That, the saving grace to this is that we're on the same boat right now. And I think everyone understands that for the most part. Uh, so you've got a YouTube channel. How did that get uh, get started? Was that to try to answer a bunch of questions and unveil product or You've guys got a couple good videos for sharpening your knives. I've liked those. So, yeah, uh, definitely, we wanted to do the YouTube channel both for information and for having fun too. Uh, I, I think that's some of it. I, I, I think people, if they are interested in something, will spend a lot of time researching that. So, we wanted to give them a place now. We're not as active as I wish we could be, and, and it's it's just you know time. Honestly, you, you can only wear so many hats. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much time that we can. So if you do find our YouTube channel, as you said, there's some good sharpening videos. There's some commercials. We made some commercials that we were working on for for the knives. There's some us out camping. There's a few of us talking about knives. You know, just di different things that we were doing with the YouTube channel. Uh, I, for one, I use YouTube like most people use Google. When I'm interested in finding something, I YouTube it because I want to see the reviews. I'm looking for tires for my Jeep. I'm looking for, you know, lift kits, whatever I may, you know, kayaks. Before we bought kayaks, I made sure I YouTube and got all the research information on the kayaks that I wanted. Yeah, it's amazing. People have taken the time to to not only like share the information, but do a like pretty good video on it, too. Yeah, some of these guys are excellent at what they do. No and doubt. until you've tried to make a video, you don't appreciate how much goes into it. <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. There is a lot of work that goes into video stuff. Um, I I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I do it because Mikey does it. So yeah, for me, it's easy. <laughs> for Mike, not so much because he's you know he's, it's probably like Cal's job. Dan, you and I have it easy. Cow and Mike, they got the rough part of it. You know, when we, we say goodbye, they're, they're still busy. All I got to do is show up and be pretty. <laughs> I, I, I totally understand. And I, I enjoy the podcast that y'all do because it's kind of like the old E2E podcast that it's all things outdoors. Like, a you know, yeah. Kyle and I's podcast is very nice specific and I enjoy that because there's people out there that want that knowledge, 
but I also kind of enjoy y'all's where it's going to be outdoor related, but you never really know what you're going to get until you tune in. You know what? I talk about knives all the time. And as you said, I, I'm with you guys on this podcast and, and I love doing that. So when we set out to do the shack, it's like, I don't want to do a knife podcast. I know we're a knife company, but let's do just like, I want us and, and literally we grab the guys out of the shop and we just sit around the table and we all have a microphone and we just talk. And I, it's, I just wanted it to be enjoyable. And sometimes it doesn't, we don't even, you know, we don't have a plan. You know, what's, what's our favorite backpack? You know, what we do an episode on our grail truck. That was one of the funnest ones. What's your holy grail truck? Well, if you had, you know, money wasn't an object, what would you build? You know, that was fun. Uh, haunted, haunted. Did you listen to the Halloween one? That was so much fun. Yeah. The haunted yeah, you, one, you know, each one of us had. That one where you, you said that uh, when you were younger, that there was like a train that went by your house or something that. Your, your oh, parents yeah. and stuff. Yeah, down at the farm. And there's so, no train yeah, anywhere. I mean, that, <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly. It's but that's why I say we didn't want we didn't want to do a knife podcast. Uh you guys are doing a knife podcast. We just wanted to do guys sitting around the table talking now now we can talk about knives, we can talk about guns, we can talk about hammocks. Of the, you know, whatever we feel like doing. The gun one, when I was listening to it, I was listening to it while I was cooking. I was like, ooh, ooh, oh, no, they said it. Okay. Oh, 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 no, they got that one. Oh, wait. Matter of fact, after the podcast, there's a couple ones that I want to mention that y'all totally skipped out on. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, maybe it's a timing thing, too. <laughs> Might have ran out of time. Oh, no, but it was just, it, it was fun that... It was a new subject and it was fluid enough that it talked about enough different subspecialties that, you know, I would get to the point. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no, they they did get there. They did make that connection. Um, So it's fun. And four people, three or four people sometimes get drowned out. But y'all do a good job of everybody's got their voice. Yeah, uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and you know, one of one of the, I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about the guys in the shop. I mean, my gosh, we're together forty hours a week. You know, we we chat during the day. Let's all just sit around the table and do a pocket dump. That was one of my favorite episodes too. Who carries what? And then we weighed it <laughs> to see how much, because <laughs> it's amazing how much stuff we carry. You know, I think Nick had the record at like five and a half pounds or something. Oh, yeah, uh, just stuff in his pockets. Like, are you kidding me? That was unreal. <laughs> well, and on, uh, uh, I think it was on the first one for the knife design when you talk about, you know, you think you want a Bowie knife, but you carry that for a little while and you realize you don't really want a Bowie knife. You want a three inch blade. Yeah. No, that, that is true. And, and, when, when you carry stuff, and again, concealed carry, that's another thing, yeah. you learn quickly that some things just aren't as good as others. <laughs> and, and, and that Bowie knife turns into a folder that goes in your front pocket on a clip. Yeah. That 8-inch 44 Magnum revolver suddenly turns into a, a 380. <laughs> oh, man, I'll never forget the time a buddy of mine got his concealed carry in Northern Virginia, and he's got the, the Clint Eastwood shoulder rig and everything. And I said, you'll carry it for a week. 
He's like, oh, man, I'm going to carry I said, you carry it for a week. I said, there's no way. It, well, I don't even know if he made it a whole week. <laughs> it, just, it was just because it's too much. Yeah. It's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. It gets in the way, too, Some or for some of that stuff. Not even just the weight, but when you're trying to yeah. do active stuff. All right. So we've got the the uh, we've got the website. We've got YouTube. Um, Facebook isn't really a thing anymore, is it? So we got Instagram. How else can people find you? Uh, you can go to the website, you know, ltratenives.com. We are active on Instagram. M- Mikey is pretty good about posting over there. I guess that's probably the biggest social media place right now. We never did do Twitter too much, if, a, if any. We do have a Facebook page. We still do post over there, but there isn't a ton of action on there. We, there is an LT Right Knives community page where guys interact on Facebook and buy, sell, trade. You know, then our private form, the Pow House. Yeah, but I, I guess Instagram is probably the social media platform right now. Oh, we actually, uh, I almost skipped. Um, y'all used to do some gatherings. Is is that something you're going to try to continue after COVID, or is it, did did that did COVID kill that? Yeah, it definitely put a damper on it. And uh, again, when things started, we had it all set up. We were actually going to be at. Uh, I remember we had all the campsites booked. It was James River in Virginia. It was state uh, state or national park, state park, I guess. Yeah, it's James River State Park. We were ready to go, and then it you know that happened. And just trying to, I don't want to be in a position right now to organize anything because, you know, we're on pins and needles every other week. We're not sure if they're going to shut something down again. So I don't want to have something planned. And, you know, I'm just, uh, we're just going to step away from it right now. Um, That makes sense to me. Yeah. It, it sucks, but you can't really do yeah. much else about it. Um, you can't. I, <laughs> now that I think about it, neither can I. I mean, <laughs> I was I was going to ask you guys. You got something we don't know about? <laughs> I mean, me and the mouse in my pocket, we do whatever we want, <laughs> as long as Beth tells me it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. I. Can I I'm going to leave you with the enormous list of dealers as places that you can find LT right knives. Yeah, I threw I threw a few of the the first page of Google uh, in the in the show notes, so you guys can check those out. And then, but he's got like tons of them, so uh, definitely check those out. Mentioned uh, the YouTube channel, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and their website. So that should be able to get you pointed in uh, a pretty good direction to get in touch with them. Is there anything other things you'd like to to plug while you're on the the podcast before we call this one a show? Or no, I just want to thank you guys for inviting me on. I I really do appreciate it. I mean, I, I really do like talking about knives for sure, and and that's always fun. But yeah, thanks for giving us an opportunity to to talk and let your listeners find out a little bit more about our company. We appreciate that. Yeah. I- I've been a I've been a fan. I've I've talked to you in passing a few times at Blade Show, but def- was excited to learn a little bit more about you and from the podcast and stuff too. We've been listening to that for a while. So well, thank you. 
You got anything, Dan? Um, I don't. It's it's a rare occasion that I don't have anything to add, useful or otherwise, but I, I feel like we've covered all the topics. <laughs> all right. Uh, so you can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com and uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram and you can find the podcast virtually everywhere that plays podcasts. Uh, you can also help support the podcast. We sell stickers on the website and you can also make a donation if you want to. Uh, all that helps to to get Dan new microphones or uh, different stuff like that for the podcast as the show starts to grow. Uh, hosting fees and stuff start increasing. So all that's great. And make sure you check out our sponsors. Uh, they help to cover some of those costs also. Uh, you can get keep in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, you can keep in touch with me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives, uh, cagedailyknives.com, and Cage Daily Knives on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. So got all those, got all those covered. So. Thanks, LT, and uh, we'll look forward to, to hopefully seeing you at Blade Show this year. You bet. Thank you, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point.